2: Welcome to Free Exchange, the CapEx podcast. I'm here with Sue Cameron, who's been a columnist for The Telegraph, The Financial Times, Civil Service World, and a presenter on Newsnight. And your field of expertise is the underexplored area, not of the politicians, but of the people who stand behind them, telling them what to say.
1: Absolutely, yes, the civil service. <laughs> Sir hum- that's the hunt
2: Exactly. So, so, how, so presumably you didn't grow up sort of uh, dreaming of being a civil, a civil service expert.
1: No, I certainly didn't, although my mother was a civil servant. Uh, she used to talk about her boss going off to the Treasury and then coming back tight as a tick, and they had to cover for him while, uh, when people came to have meetings with him. Um, but no, I didn't. Uh, I uh, started off doing all sorts of other things, covering education, energy, chemicals for the FT. Um, and it was because of energy that I um, became interested in the civil service, because while I was on the FT... I uh, uh, got to know obviously some of the civil servants at the old Department of Energy and the then permanent secretary who was a lovely man called Sir Donald Maitland suggested that one of us go and become, um, be seconded to the department which was quite revolutionary in those days uh, and that that's how I got interested in
2: yeah. it. Isn't that a breach of journalistic objectivity, or was it a kind of like a week in the life of, uh, of the civil service?
1: Well, I wasn't just there for a week. I was there for eighteen months. Oh, blind. I was a proper seconded oh, okay. civil servant. No, no, no. They were very—they were all lovely, but they were quite um, distrustful of me at first. Sort of don't tell her anything. Um, and they made me sign the Official Secrets Act and all this stuff.
2: Uh, so were you working in which area of policy were you working I
1: in? was in the policy, what was the policy unit, uh, which sort of covered a whole load of different things.
2: And uh, when was this? In- oh, it
1: was a long time ago. It was in the 1980s. It was a very long time ago. It was um, It was very old-fashioned. I mean, with my first problem was, I was obviously using a typewriter, I mean, which is what everybody used in those days. And uh, they were still using pens. And the idea that somebody should have a typewriter was regarded as really, really way up.
2: I think, um, I remember Jeremy Hayward talking about this. When he started, he'd have to, at the, in the civil service, he'd have to write things out and you get them sent down to the, the girls in the basement who would do the typing and then it would, it would come up sort of a month later. Oh, it was
1: much worse than uh, sending them down. He was lucky if they only had to go down in the, in the basement. Uh, ours got sent to Lancashire. Uh, our typing and uh, people would write stuff out and uh, it would go away and at first I, they kept saying oh it's got to go it'll be two days and I thought why does it take all this time and it was literally because it had to go hundreds of miles to be typed and the reason for it was that that's what they'd done during World War Two, and they were still doing it.
2: <laughs> well the a way, way to live the cliche about the <laughs> So, 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 so at that point, you could I mean, actually, were you? I mean, were you working on sort of privatisation and, and that kind of thing? No, like, no, no Were you no, the no. Se- so you weren't you weren't the sort of secret mastermind? No,
1: I wish I had been. No, no, no. They didn't keep me. Uh, didn't let me too near privatisation. They used to get some of the gossip. Um, uh, uh, Peter Walker was the minister for a while. And he used to really put the wind up them because he would say to them things like, there was one occasion, I think, where he said uh, they were all fracking around wondering about privatisation, I think, of British gas. And um, he said uh, they came in one day and he said, oh, no, no, i fixed that up. I talked to Sir Dennis Rourke, who was the head of British gas. I talked to Sir Dennis Rourke over dinner. It's all right. It's all under control. And none of the civil servants had been told anything about it. And they went absolutely <laughs> berserk, you know, this was a minister gone awol in a big way. Um, but it was, it was quite funny, I mean, it, if, you were, if you were not one of them, one of the ones who'd been bypassed.
2: And presumably, as well as being a, an outsider because you were a journalist, you were an outsider because you were a woman.
1: Yes, but um, there were quite a few women in the department. There were Penny Boys who later became uh, went on to do several very uh, senior jobs. I'll have to check them, but I think she became, I think she was head of, um, she was a regulator certainly for a while, um, and she was my boss. Um, so it, there weren't that uh, it wasn't sort of totally uh, denuded of women. There was there were some some good women, and there were some really quite senior women.
2: But it was still the old... you know. It was still
1: mainly men. Yes, of course it was. It's Of course it was.
2: So, so did they give you the opportunity of sticking around? Or were you always going to head back to the FT?
1: Well, I don't think I wanted to... I wasn't pressing them to be allowed to become a full-time <laughs> civil
2: servant. I really I mean, wanted to regulate it. the coal industry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy it, but I did quite uh, want to get back to being a journalist, I think. Watching it in a way is more fun. Uh, power without responsibility—the prerogative of the harlot throughout
2: the ages. exactly. Um, so yeah, so, so you go back to the FT and um, and you do do a variety of jobs, um ending up as a victory editor, uh, I think.
1: Well, no, not quite. Um, I went back to the FT and I wrote about the civil service. I mean, it was wonderful. They got very cross because. I picked up a few quite good stories, which I, I suppose that I was rather stupid. Really, I didn't realise it would upset them. There was one I found out there had been warehouses full of things like mule shoes, which had been <laughs> there since the Crimean War or something. And somebody said, "Oh, you know, there's all this these warehouses, and they're full of this stuff." Anyway, it was a front page splash. And the, Richard Wilson, who later became the cabinet secretary, he was my um, boss in the uh, Department, he was at the Department of Energy and he he was, he was said, you know, you shouldn't have done that to us. But I mean, later, since he, then, he's uh, laughed about it. But I got interested in them um, after that, um, and interested in government and interested in the way they, uh, they ran things. I mean, it was very much like Yes Minister. And one of the things I liked about civil servants, certainly quite a lot of those in that department, was that they were wonderfully subversive in a terribly sort of well behaved way but they were I mean their comments about ministers about other departments about oh oh god who let that minister out in public I mean you know really it shouldn't be allowed Um, they were very uh, they were very entertaining they're a very good crowd in many ways
2: yeah, because I mean, that, that's the thing which always strikes me It's not that you, you do this but then no one else does. It's, it seems to be a sort of underexplored under, sort of, under area.
1: Well, I think it is an underexplored area but I think it is much more explored now than it, uh, uh, it used to be. It, they were very, very secretive for a very long time. I mean, Harold Wilson um, gave orders that nobody was to talk to journalists and it became, you know, it was almost impossible. Peter Hennessy was the first one who really managed to get through and he then... Um, Started helped to start the Institute for Contemporary History which was slightly different to journalism proper but he was the first one who really got to write a lot about them and I suppose I did too in a way because I I was interested in what was going on and I remember writing, which I really enjoyed writing just after I came back to the FT a sort of guide for business people about their language and about how to treat civil servants um, and what they should do and what they meant. You know, the time is not ripe means not in your lifetime, sunshine.
2: Yeah, because because you know, it's, it's a strange thing that you know the state spends forty percent of GDP. I mean, a colossal amount of money by by any standards. And any day you'll find people arguing about how it should be spent or what it should be spent on. But no one kind of sort of seems to be interested in you know how well it's how well it actually. It spends. You know what happens once it goes into the machine and then comes out the other, other end.
1: Well, I, th- I don't know. about they're not interested in. It. I think quite a lot of people are interested in it, um, and uh, I think there is more and more monitoring of it by all sorts of people, um, and I think in principle that's a good thing, and years ago including when I was there I mean they did get away with murder I think Margaret I, I don't mean that, literally of course <laughs> they did get away with <laughs> saying a, for a, instance two MPs uh, <clears throat> you know the civil servants would turn up and say well um, uh, I guess I you know I'm afraid that we were just doing what our minister uh, told us you'll have to ask the minister about that and the minister would turn up and say uh, uh, oh well that was an operational matter nothing to do with me entirely down to the civil servants Um and nobody ever took responsibility for anything. Um, but And they don't do that now. They can't get away with that. I think Margaret Hodge stopped them doing that.
2: Although, she, although she, she still complains that they, they do put too much of it, that uh, you know, no one is actually rewarded or punished for... Well, I know, but it.
1: I think... Um, I mean, I think Margaret Hodge is terrific, but I think... Uh, I think it's very, very difficult to do what politicians want to do, and of course Margaret's a politician, and that is to say it's so-and-so's fault. You know, they want to blame a person, and the, one of the great difficulties is that big projects, whether it's a big policy, you know, like universal credit, which I think is still hasn't quite happened yet. I mean, seven years on, whatever, even though Ian Duncan Smith thought he could do it in three years. They have unrealistic timetables, often the politicians do, and the, the political timetable doesn't match the, the real life timetable. And if you've got something, whether it's a, a policy project or a, a physical project, a road or a railway or a runway or whatever, um, you know, you're going to have a whole load of different people m- often making decisions that at the time are perfectly sensible and, and easy to defend. But when you put them all together, and there's different, slightly different circumstances, um, um, the economy changes, the amount of money changes, somebody comes along and says, I want a slightly different specification, um, and the people change, you know, you can't expect sometimes they say, well, you should have the same civil servants there all the time. Well, of course you can't, you know, people retire, people want to be promoted. People want to say, you know, stuff this for a game of soldiers, I'm going to go to the private sector and earn three times as much. So uh, people die sometimes, and if it's somebody who dies in office, it can cause a lot of um, chaos in terms of personnel. So you can't, or ministers, move along like anything. Uh, David Cameron was quite good at keeping people mm. in the same place for a long time but before then Blair used to change them every year I mean you know they didn't know anything about the subject and then they were moved on to another
2: one which of course meant the civil servants were in effect running things
1: well somebody has to know a bit about the subject yeah uh, or, I mean a few of them were allowed to stay, but, uh, but but those are the difficulties it's very very hard to pinpoint a particular mm. person sometimes with and, with and to do it um before you've had sort of years of hindsight
2: but the, pro- the sort of the process you're describing the end point of that is things like britain's aircraft carrier program where you've got you know, we spent an ungodly amount of money on these two great things which as far as i can make we don't actually have any planes for
1: uh well uh, uh, yes and they, i think one of them at least has been mothballed before it's even you know been in the water <clears throat> no, you do. You, there are huge things. That, there are, I mean, PFI, I mean, all of those. We're paying sort of three times as much, I think, for some of the hospitals and schools, et etc., et cetera, uh, uh, than their value because people, the civil mm. service was screwed by the private sector. Um, there have been numerous IT disasters where millions have been wasted. Um, there's loads and loads of cock-ups, I mean people have, uh, there's, the, there's a book called The Blunders of Our Government, and um, Tony, Tony King, who just died, was one of the authors, and they detail some of them, and you just think, how could it happen? Um, but when you look at it, there aren't, it's, there aren't easy answers um, to most of them. I mean there are a few of them where you can say, well so just shouldn't have been allowed. Within a million million miles of government, and often ministers say, "But we want it. You know, we've got to do
2: this." Well, on the aircraft carriers, yes, they, there was a, there were changes <laughs> changes from on high, which yeah. But you had, to, I mean, so you don't subscribe to the well, I suppose the the, the, uh, the Dominic Cummings view that there's sorry there are entire floors of, of bureaucrats who should have been fired years ago who are just being sort of being mothballed there in your in your words. No, no,
1: no. I absolutely don't. No, I most certainly do not subscribe to the Dominic Cummings view of uh, anything much. Um, (laughs) I think the idea that there are squillions of bureaucrats who, if only we got rid of them, everything would be uh, dead easy, is ridiculous. It's like people who say, well, get rid of quangos, uh, without any recognition that if, you know, A, there are very different kinds of quangos from little tiny ones which have experts working for them for free. I mean, all they charge are their bus fares. Uh, to great big uh, outfits and if you didn't have a quango doing the job then you would have to um, take it back into a department you wouldn't get rid of any civil servants and they're doing things that do need to be done and people scream quickly enough and loudly enough if they suddenly find that the health service or the schools or the transport system there's nobody there and nobody's doing anything I mean HMRC uh, which has uh, been cut back rather, they keep getting shouted at because people find it difficult to get through to them when they're doing their tax forms. But
2: let me push back on that. I mean, without going as far as the Steve Hilton view that you should shrink the civil service to the point where you can fit all of it in Somerset House, as, as happened in the great days of the Empire. You know, yeah, are... but that
1: was theft. I mean, we didn't really run in, uh, India with a 1,000 people. There were a 1,000 people in the top layer of the civil service when we had an am- empire, right up to about 1939, including some Indians, by the way. We were quite liberal. by our, uh, Right from the time we reformed the civil service here, or just after, we said that we opened up the Indian civil service to people of all colours and creeds. I think you had to have helped if you'd been to the right school in Oxbridge, which rather narrowed the field but we did Uh, but below the uh, administrative grade the top of the civil service there was a whole raft thousands of (coughs) excuse me there were thousands of civil servants mainly Indians who did all the heavy lifting and below that there were thousands probably millions who did all the what were called the clerical
2: jobs Sure, what I was saying was that um... You know, in 2010, George Osborne comes and says we're going to cut departmental budgets by a, a very large amount of money, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of an ongoing process, and that's happened, and it's happening, and so far there doesn't seem to have been a grotesque collapse in the quality of public services.
1: I went to a press conference this morning at the Institute for Government, which was looking at the quality of public services. And they were looking at, they've got a whole lot of data. They've done a sort of a tracker, monitoring health, prisons, um, education, social care. And what they found was uh, that from 2010, things went very well. Money often went down because there were attempts to... uh, uh, cut back and certainly not to spend any more money and some of them have been ring-fenced, but after about 2013 you found that performance did start to go down because of the shortage of money or the shortage of people You know in terms of targets not being met in the health service um, riots in the prisons more of them uh, obviously um, and uh, there is the you know the the cuts in money and the cuts in numbers are often reflected it takes time to feed through and the civil service i mean it's quite right that the civil service you have to keep at the lid on the numbers because otherwise it'll drift up and up and up and if you go back and look at civil service numbers over the last 20 years there is a tendency for them a government to come in and say, right, we're going to cut down these civil, we've got to get rid of the bureaucrats, and they, they start having quite drastic cuts. And then the numbers creep up and up and up, and then somebody else comes in and says, right, we've got to get the numbers down, and the numbers go down, and then they go up and up and up. But you do need people to do jobs. I mean, what's going to happen now over Brexit, I don't know, because since 2010, I think the civil service has been cut by about 20%, best part of 100,000 down. Um, and how they're going to manage they've put on a few about 2,000 I think uh, Jeremy Sir Jeremy Hayward the the cabinet secretary says Um, but they're probably going to need more I would guess Well, so that was
2: my next question actually um, how do you think the Brexit Well, a. How do you think the establishment of the new departments has gone? And b. How do you think do you think the civil service can cope with the demands of Brexit and with the demands of doing its existing jobs? Because one of the most interesting things for me about Philip Hammond's last autumn statement was he said we're going to stick to the departmental spending limits, and that seems like a you know an ambitious decision given what you were just talking about.
1: Well, I think it is an ambitious decision. I think. I think uh, uh, there's several things. I think as far as setting up the new departments has gone, or Brexit, the Brexit, the one that matters is the Brexit department. Uh, And I think David Davis is somebody who is doing well. I think he's a very impressive minister in a very, very difficult job. Uh, and I think the civil servants like him. They like him because he uh, listens to... I When I say he listens to them, I don't mean he necessarily does what they want, but he gives them and, a hearing. So it's not he going to be No, no, he, he gives them a hearing, and he will also agree to disagree, unlike some ministers you can think of, particularly involved in Brexit, either for or against, who just say, this is right, this is wonderful, or oh, that's terrible. Um, he He will agree to disagree. Um, and I think he's very, very good at dealing with MPs. He's always so genial, you know, I'd love to do that, but I do think there are a few difficulties, and he takes on board what the difficulties are. And I think that that department is going probably as well as it can in the circumstances, given that nobody had done any preparation, and indeed you probably couldn't at all. I think the civil servants... Um, I think there's two two things about the civil servants. I think most of them will have voted to remain. I mean, probably almost to a man. But um, where some of the uh, sort of the fruitcake end of the Brexit spectrum get it wrong is when they say, oh, they're opposing us. You know, they don't like this, that or the other. They've said it's difficult. Like over Sir Ivan Rogers when he resigned as our uh, representative in Brussels. And, of course, the last thing you want if you're a minister uh, trying to do Brexit is civil servants or diplomats who say, oh, this will be as easy as falling off a log, minister. No problem, minister. What you want are people who will point out every possible difficulty and obstacle because forewarned is forearmed. And at least you know where the pressure points, most obvious ones, are going to be. And then you can sit down and think how you're going to cope with them. Uh, And I think that the civil servants, which is always true of the civil servants, one of the reasons they quite like changes of government, is that Brexit, however much they were against it as individuals, um, Brexit intellectually and professionally is really, really interesting. I mean, it's absolutely gripping from their point of view. How do we do it? How do we make it happen? What are we going to do about... The border, the Irish, um, you know, the uh, the trade deals, the, the, the Europeans, um, there's just so many. The competition policy, um, environmental policy, I mean, there are so many different things that are, they're going to have to get to grips with. But from their point of view, um, it's really, really fascinating.
2: Yes, I mean, the way I've had it described to me is that the sort of seniors here, the people who are who are in their sort of fifties or, or whatever and are, and ready to go up into into the public sector or to or to get a pension? They're just kind of washing their hands of it. But the, the younger ones in the sort of twenties or thirties are much more are much sort of keen to get involved. It's striking that the Brexit department, the the senior civil servants there are sort of very good, but they're also quite young. They're the sort of ambitious guys who want to be part of this because it's the, the most important thing that's happening.
1: Well, I don't, know that, I don't know that I... You might be right, but I, I'd be surprised if there was quite such a... Sh- I mean, I think to you're right. There are Ollie Robbins and the others aren't uh, uh, grey beards by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that uh, there isn't necessarily that much of a division between um, old and, and young in terms of attitude to Brexit. I think quite a lot of older ones will also find it really, really interesting.
2: And what about the, the wider capacity issue? Because you've got people like DEFRA, where you know, effectively their job for the last 30 years has been to rubber stamp stuff sent over mm-hmm. from Brussels.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I think that's where they might run into problems on numbers. when um, We don't really know what the shape of the New Deal is going to be. I think there are areas like agriculture, and that's not the only one. A home office is another one. I mean, there are loads where they are going to need more people. I mean, the border agency, for a start, if we're taking control of our borders, we are going to need God only knows how many more uh, people to man the borders. Um, We're going to still need more trade negotiators, Uh, I mean, actual people who've got really detailed knowledge about trade negotiations, and we've got some, but not very many. The Australians, I think, have got 120 or 130 of people who really do the the nitty gritty negotiation. We've got people who do trade policy, we've got people who know about promoting trade, but doing the actual negotiations, because it's all been done by Brussels, um, they're going to need to hire, find more people there, and I don't quite know where they're going to find them. Because if you hire foreigners, Can you trust them? I mean, you know, you might try and hire
2: Australians, but they might
1: be on Australia's side instead of us. We've only got about 22 of them, I think.
2: Although one of the, um, I mean, the Lagos Institute has got its new trade commission and one of them was saying that he was, he was made Mexico's chief NAFTA negotiator and didn't never done any trade negotiating in his life, but, you know, sort of bumbled his way through it. And as he said, he, he came up with such a good deal that Donald Trump is now calling it the, the product of, you know, fiendish Mexican negotiators. And he was like, going, that's well, that's not a high standard.
1: <laughs> I don't know that that is necessarily the standard we want to aim for. I think that it is complicated, and I think if you've got really good, I mean, I think you've got good people and they can learn, but I think if you, uh, I think it's going to be difficult. But that's another area where we're going to need to hire some more people at least. There are, I think, there's going to be quite a few areas where they will have to hire
2: more people. And one of the big changes in government recently has obviously been Theresa May taking over, Mm. and with her, she has effectively brought the Home Office with her. You know, most of the. Senior people around her are people she knows and trusts from her old job. And um, it seems like quite a few noses are out know, of joint about this, especially in the Treasury.
1: Absolutely, the poor old Treasury. I was talking to somebody from the Treasury the other night and he said, we're a punch bag.
2: Poor things. Um, I don't think you can ever describe the Treasury as a punch
1: bag. <laughs> well, he was a, he was Treasury Mandarin. He said we're being used as a punch bag, blamed for everything. I think... Um, Uh, Bob Kerslake, Lord Kerslake, the former head of the civil service, has just done a report for Labour on the Treasury. And one of the things he says is that they've been weakened because their forecasts about disaster after Brexit didn't happen. Um, And uh, as you say, a lot of the Treasury people, because the Treasury um, tended to produce the people who went on to become private secretaries in number 10 and ultimately cabinet secretaries. So it, it was
2: it striking, was we both, I think, were at a, an event at the Institute for Government where they lined up all of the former cabinet secretaries, you know, the, the, the proper Sir Humphreys, and one of them sort of said, oh yes, I'm the outsider here because I never worked in the Treasury or number 10. like yes that, was, yes. that was the kind of golden path to... That,
1: that, that's absolutely right. And so the Treasury is out of joint. And after the Ivan Rogers row um the job of our ambassador to brussels for ages has gone to a treasury man and now it's been given to sir tim barrow i think it is who is uh, a foreign office man so there's all sorts of private wars going on and i think the treasury is i think there has been a sort of a change in the in the whole atmosphere, if you like. I mean, for years and years, people had believed it was the economy stupid. In this country, uh, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were, I mean, they were at war, but Gordon Brown was immensely powerful, and not just powerful on the economy, but on every other department. What Gordon liked got money, and what he didn't like didn't. And that was replicated pretty much, in a slightly less uh, violent way, with Osborne... um, and Cameron and it's over now I don't think it's the same thing now at all and uh, in his report I don't think that this will necessarily happen in the way that uh, he said but I mean uh, Bob Kerslake said in his report that the Treasury should uh, stand back from trying to run other departments and concentrate on the the economy other countries.
2: In most other countries there is this split, isn't it, David? There is a the department which does the government budget and there is a the department which does the economy.
1: Well, we did try that under Harold Wilson, I think. I think it was under mm-hmm. Harold Wilson. It yes. didn't work. Um, they fought each other tooth and nail. Uh, I think the question is just how influential the Treasury is. Um, and I think, you know, the industrial... We've got an industrial strategy now, which we haven't had for age or at least not called that. Um, I think the business department is taking much more responsibility for that, so some of the uh, powers that the Treasury has exercised are being taken away from it or being quietly manoeuvred away and there is this personnel question, there are fewer Treasury people around the Prime Minister. However. I don't ever underestimate the Treasury. I mean, they'll come back. It always comes down to the money, you know, the big things in Brexit. How much do we have to pay them? It might not be 60 billion, which is, I think, what their, their opening bid is for. But even so, it's going to cost money. I think Hammond will have to do all the stuff on financial services. Apparently, he's already been uh, talking to some of the Europeans about... Brexit and about the sort of economic side of it. So I don't think the Treasury, they might have taken a bit of a beating or be taking a bit of a beating. There are even rumours that some of them in number 10 have been sort of um, outlawed or, or exiled to the basement and not in the you know, the best bit of number 10. But I think that um, don't, don't underestimate them. They won't have disappeared entirely. They've they dominated Whitehall uh, Nick McPherson, Lord McPherson, the former uh, permanent secretary at the Treasury, um, reckons that the Treasury first became predominant in Whitehall uh, at the time of the the Dutch Wars in the 17th century, and it was because (laughs) the Dutch uh, were much more efficient at running their navy. We were in complete chaos, and so we reformed the Treasury. And uh, ever since then, the Treasury has been a very well, efficient um, department.
2: You can see the glorious revolution of the, of the Dutch takeover of the British state, where we well, you could We, indeed. we import yeah. their institutions wholesale and then go on to eclipse them because of our larger population base yeah. but, um, <laughs> um, no, um, but in terms of um, Theresa May herself, I mean, obviously, and one of the things which interests me is that um, May, obviously, at the Home Office, just being at the Home Office kind of puts you in this sort of defensive position that your job is... You know, any, at any moment, there could be a story about immigrants rampaging across the borders, or terrorist plots that you didn't spot. You know, it's a job which is about kind of being alert to crises and kind of you know sort of flinching every time a, a news story comes over the over the horizon. And it sort of feels like at, at first she definitely transferred that to to, to Downing Street because that's that's how she knew what she knew.
1: Well, I think there might be some truth in that. The great thing about Theresa May. Is that she survived at the home mm. at the home office because oh, yeah. an awful lot of people—it's been a graveyard for a lot of politicians—and mm. having
2: to put up with the, the the sort of insufferable conversation of Cameron and Osborne for, for ten years.
1: Well, yes, yes, I'm sure she felt that strongly. But the fact was, she survived. Not only she survived; she won in in, in many senses, um, well, in every sense. <laughs> and she was very, very. Um, she was very good. And do you remember the speech she gave to the Police Federation when she read the. The so and so is the Riot Act, and I remember a minister saying to me, it was a Lib Dem minister, uh, not one of her own, and he said, um, he said ministers have been Home Office ministers have been wanting to make that speech for years and years and years, and now she's had the courage to do it, and that is just amazing. We're all in awe of her. Um, So, I mean, she didn't. She wasn't just lucky. I mean, she really Mm. did. uh, I think uh, managed to survive and managed to impose. I mean, as the police federation speech is one of the, the, the speech, the police is one of the strongest examples. Managed to impose um, her will. I don't know how it's going to work out at Number Ten. Um, people will say. I mean, civil service people will say Number Ten is very different to any other department. There are loads of different things happening to a much greater extent than the Mm. Home Office. I mean, you know, there's foreign affairs, the domestic crises, the politics, so many different things. And the bad example of
2: this is Gordon Brown, who's used to running the Treasury, which, again, you can just put your head down and get on with the job. And And they don't get out a lot in the Treasury. and And then you go into number 10 and suddenly you know, you've got a, a thousand more demands on your time and it's all, and basically all goes to hell because mm. he can't stop chasing the news. Whereas May is, is more, has response has been more to withdraw herself from the news agenda, which I think is actually a, a sort of a more sensible way of doing it. But it I does th- leave a vacuum to, to be filled.
1: I think that is, I think that's right. I think to withdraw from the news agenda, I think a lot's going on on the news front. I mean, the way... The news and the news media is mm. being given battering on all sides. But mm. I think there are difficulties in what she's doing. She relies an awful lot on uh, Nick and Fee, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, her uh, special advisors who were with her at the Home Office. Um, people say, civil servants say that they send stuff into Number 10, you know, for approval mm. or to what do you think of this or whatever, and it just doesn't come out again. And one of the difficulties is that it's such a big... Um not organisation, it's actually very tiny compared to other countries, but it's such a a big workload coming at you from so many different directions that it's very difficult to do it with a really tiny team who aren't actually um, civil servants. I mean, obviously she's got Jeremy Hayward and she's got civil servants um, around her as well. But if you are trying to do things through your spads, it does, and doing too much through your spads, it does become very, very difficult. And it's fine so far, but it usually is fine until it isn't fine. And then it gets really, it can get really very difficult and things start falling apart. So I think we've got to wait and see.
2: So going back, um, you and I first met each other, like
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves,
2: Don't know whether you remember on a commission to yes, to, yes. Uh, to uh, decide how the how the how Brit- the British government could be reshaped, and you stormed out of this commission after about two weeks because you decided it was not going to. I mean, you rightly uh, wasn't was only interested in sort of uh, quite um, superficial uh, changes.
1: Um, well, I didn't storm out of it after, after two weeks. So I remember going to quite a lot of meetings and seeing endless sort of initial copies of reports. I thought, and I still think this in broad terms, that um, one of the things that people wanted was to um, put uh, have the civil servants replaced, as it were, or supplemented very heavily by experts. And there are still plenty of people who uh, want that. I know Michael Gove has spoken out against experts, supposedly. But there is a view among quite a few people, and I think it's completely misconceived, that if you only get, um, that there is a way that uh, if you go about it the right way, you can come up with the right policy or the best possible policy. Well, sometimes you can, and obviously you can put yourself in a good position to Stand the best chance of coming up with a good policy, but the idea that if you have a particular process or a particular kind of person, like a, you know, load of experts on whatever it might be, whether it's energy or uh, immigration. immigration or anything else or education, that you will come up with the right answer or the best possible answer strikes me as being nonsense. It's a, it's an interplay between the politics and. People who've got some experience of running things, which isn't politicians on the whole, because most of them have never run anything in their lives, and one or two of them couldn't couldn't run a bath even on a good day. Um, but it's you know, but they have the ideas, and they have they have to the ideas to the public. And often they over one of our problems, it seems to me, is that they oversell them. This will be fine. Just vote for us. It'll all be perfect. Um, and you know it not going to be perfect it's going to be difficult and if only we could find a way to get people to be more honest but i don't think that uh saying well let's have a whole lot of different type of people running this is the answer
2: yes because i mean there's obama's classic line which is you know there are no easy decisions in the white house because by the time it gets to <laughs> the minister or the president you know all the easy options if, it, if there was an easy option if there was a best policy then someone mary jr would have said let's do this and yeah absolutely would have yes
1: Absolutely, it never gets up to the to the top uh, if, uh, if if there 's an obvious solution to a tricky problem um, and I think that 's true and I think sometimes when people are trying to find different ways to do government, they just don 't take account of the, the compromises that have to be made um, you know which are inevitable uh, and um, and also government, partly because of us the media i suppose government doesn 't often get uh, that much credit when it does get things right you know everybody's always looking for the disaster that oh god they're doing this and increasingly over the last years um there's a constant implication that the government or works both ways the opposition too that they're not only incompetent but they're acting in bad faith now occasionally they are but on the whole politicians aren't all out for what they can get, or not in a uh, you know in a financial corrupt sense, um, and they're not acting in bad faith. They just get things wrong, rather like yes minister. But
2: there is also a kind of culture. Well, you've got the yes minister miscellany uh, mm. with, with, with you here, just just in case we run out of material. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, there is, but there's, there is, there is obviously as well. There, you know, there is obviously a culture. There is obviously a type of person who gets drawn into politics, and a, a type of person who gets into the into the civil service. You know, who's smooth and plausible and looks quite like the people in in Yes Minister. Well, I
1: don't think they look like the people in Yes Minister anymore. I think they look much more like uh, <coughs> any other uh, any other set of people, and I don't think uh, that they are quite as uh, smooth and. I don't, most yeah, of them are quite as smooth yeah, yeah, uh,
2: and plausible as some. But yeah, but, uh, but as I mean, people have said, you know, you know di- there has been diversity in everything except viewpoints. The, the, you know, the the civil service has has ticked every single box, but it still you know, it still recruits for the PPE graduate who can write a great essay.
1: Well, I think they're trying quite hard to uh, get away from that and to become diverse in a lot a lot more. I think they're very acutely aware of the need to be and more science diverse and technology, than and project
2: management, all these things.
1: Yes, and I don't know that they're always that much better. I mean, they do have to do management. The civil service doesn't run itself. Uh, they run uh, uh, vast um, chunks of public uh, uh, services, I mean, whether it's um, um, immigration or whether it's the passport office. or I mean, when you look at all the things that they ha- run, they have to run those. And they have to run Whitehall itself. I mean, it won't just run itself. So they do need to do management. And they've tried, um, I think, far too hard to, uh, they went through a period, they've got over it now, of hiring consultants and coming up with loads and loads of sort of management speak and uh, re-christening themselves, giving themselves new names. I think they've now got somebody, um, I think his name's McNeil, and he glories in the name of title of Chief People Officer. And you do think, oh dear, you know somebody's trying. I mean, I'm sure he's yes, very you know, competent, very good guy. Government.
2: government chief transformation executive. Yeah, that's
1: yeah. right, absolutely. Uh, and they're trying, and I think that, frankly, on the whole, it would be better if they hadn't tried quite so much. And, and, of, and also, yes. it was expensive.
2: But part of that, you know, is, is the way that the civil service has imported the kind of bonus culture of the, in some ways, imported the bonus culture from the, the private sector without the kind of the, the sort of higher the, without the sort of the, the punishments for failure.
1: Well, they don't get the bonus. Do they not? No, no, no. I mean, the bonuses are are absolutely tiny. Not
2: multiples of salary, but there's
1: a... Oh, but come on. I mean, you're not going to tell me that uh, in the private sector they don't get rewarded for failure. They get millions. Banks (laughs) go bust. Uh, you know, and, and the guy who's at the top leaves with uh, with absolutely enormous payoffs, and in a way the, and the and civil ge- service doesn't. And then, the, and government, government, then the, the
2: government buys them and runs them even more even worse <coughs> than the bankers did.
1: Well, it, yes, that's probably true. I mean, some people are saying we should just get rid of the wretched banks, you know. And uh, but certainly, I don't think that uh, the civil, people have never joined the civil service to make money. Uh, at least if they have, they've been very um, much misled. Just on the failure front, um, I mean, of course the civil civil service can bungle with the best of them, of course it can, and it sometimes does. But uh, the civil service success rate, compared with the private sector, I mean, they're not the private sector and they can't be run like the private sector. But um, the civil service success rate on major projects, the failure rate, if you like, is about the same as in the private sector. If anything, it's rather better. The private sector gets vast areas of things wrong. I mean, the banks is one example, but there are plenty of projects in the private sector that go badly wrong. And the difference is that they don't get highlighted in the way that the ones that go wrong in the public
2: sector. Well the difference is it's not taxpayers' money at stake.
1: Well that's not the difference, no, it's it's shareholders' money. It's not money that should be uh, just, uh, you know, thrown away. And they, they, they lose it, and I mean, it pays for your or my pensions, I mean, this money. It's, it's, it's public money in the broadest sense of the word. And the point is, they are no better at doing it, and for much the same reasons, and often worse, the private sector. But they don't get all over the front pages, or all over the um, the media, as uh, you know, a great disaster.
2: Well, I, I think we probably have to disagree, disagree on that one. Um, into, I, I, yes, I find it hard to accept that the public, you know, if you, if you read the books you're talking about, uh, or Margaret Hodge's book, that, you know, mm-hmm. the public sector is as well-managed as people think.
1: It's a, it is or it
2: isn't? I, 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 I would say it probably isn't.
1: I don't know. I think it does quite a lot of things well, and I think, or, I mean, if you look back over the years, it's done some amazing things. You know, I mean, if you and go some back...
2: And some appalling
1: ones. And some appalling ones, but mainly, I mean, often amazing ones. I mean, if you go back to the end of the Second World War, you know, the the economy was absolutely on its knees because of the war. And they were setting up the National Health Service, expanding the education system, the welfare system, nationalising everything in sight. I mean, it was, um, which none of them, some of them deeply <laughs> yes. disbelieved in. And, it, I mean, and it, you know, we've still got the National Health Service, it's still Yes, yeah, I'm not sure and that's then that's again, 30 inside, years it was a great,
2: a great triumph for British industry.
1: Well, it was what the politicians wanted. You know, ministers decide, civil servants advise and then do it. And the job of civil servants, it was like Brexit, you know. They actually, at least government had been elected people wanted nationalisation. If anybody were to vote for Corbyn, although I don't think there's too much danger of that, uh, he wants to nationalise a whole lot of things. But the job of the civil servants ultimately is to do what the elected ministers want, even if they disagree. I think Norman Brook, who was the uh, cabinet secretary at the time, didn't agree with uh, nationalisation, but they did it. And when Thatcher came in 30, 40 years later, They privatised everything, which some of them weren't very happy about, but they did it. And, you know, these are huge, huge projects. Not as big as Brexit's going to be, mind, but they are absolutely um, enormous uh, projects. And I think that far bigger than most of the things that have to be done in the private sector where you're just concerned with your company
2: or your industry. You were talking about... um... Civil servants doing what
1: Reward for failure is much bigger and better in the private sector than ever it is well, in the private really, sector. I was going to
2: ask you a question about whether you're the prisoner of your sources. but obviously, <laughs> No, 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 I'm
1: not <laughs> the prisoner of my sources. No, 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 I don't think I'm the prisoner of... I mean, it's always... Agency capture is always um, a, a risk. But no, I don't think I'm the prisoner of, uh, of my sources at all. I mean, come on, you just have to look. I mean, look, it's so shifty. Look at that other one, um, Ashley, Sports Direct. I mean, their private sector, wonderful. Three yachts, I mean, you know, and his pension, the people whose pensions he was meant to look after at BHS have got absolutely nothing. And as he made one, well, it took a long time to get it out of him, and he's still got three yachts. <laughs> Not many permanent secretaries have got three yachts.
2: Not many from permanent secretaries have got one yacht.
1: Well, <laughs> this is
2: true. <laughs> You're talking about, you know, civil servants do what ministers to uh, tell them. Um, Well,
1: ultimately they do what ministers tell them. They argue sometimes, and sometimes... And they
2: wrote wrote memos saying, I disagree with this minister.
1: Yeah, uh, well, yes. Um, I did um, a sort of discussion with um, some uh, top civil servants last year, and um, I said to them, you know, what about, isn't it your job to say no, minister? And one of them said... um, Oh, we said no is a very ugly word. We try not to use it. And what they say is, well, if you want to do that, Minister, maybe it would be better to do it this way or better to do it that way, rather than I think you're nuts. Um, And if a Minister hasn't got any ideas, or if his ideas are completely unworkable, and you can't get other people to agree, like the Chancellor or the Prime Minister, or perhaps other colleagues who might be involved, um, then, of course, the civil servants will step in. I mean, they've usually got one they've prepared earlier, if they have to. But um, what they like, actually, they're like any bunch of soldiers, really. They like being led from the front. What they like are ministers who know what they want and who've got political clout. I think that's one of the reasons they like David Davis.
2: Well, so I was going to ask, who are the, apart from uh, DD? who are the other ministers, who or sort of prime ministers, who you think have kind of done that well, and, and badly?
1: Gosh, um... Greg Clark, I think, is quite well thought of. This lot have only been around for a bit, so it's, uh, apart from Davis, it's a bit hard to, to assess um, all of them. Um, I think they liked Thatcher, I mean, for a lot of the time, um, because she knew what uh, what she wanted. Um, I think they liked, just, I mean, from that era, they liked... Uh, Heseltine, and who also very much knew what he wanted. Um, and and I think Lawson was a powerful chancellor. I think Blair, I think they got on very well with Major. I mean, he was almost the civil servant Monquet. Um But I think they found that he was somebody that they could found very, uh, very much on a similar wavelength. Understood the difficulties and was prepared to listen but who was quite tough I mean I think Major um, didn't always get the uh, kudos and the prestige that he deserved I mean he you know his premiership was dominated by Maastricht and the battle with the bastards but I think that a lot of what he did um, he survived a very long time and I think he he was somebody that the civil service Both liked and felt was a good prime minister, and he did. He's another one who had, I think, quite a lot of, uh, um, quite a lot of sort of thoughtfulness and quite a lot of awareness of the difficulties of governing. Gordon Brown didn't really have any. I mean, he was all right, wonderful in the end for rescuing people or making the very best of the two thousand and eight crash. and uh, keeping us out of the Euro. But um, I think everybody found Gordon impossible to deal with. And he also um, stirred up huge resentment because he was running so much of Whitehall from the Treasury. Blair, uh, there's uh, the official history of the cabinet secretaries has just come out. Um, And Blair, of course, bypassed them. Blair had served the government. And the reason Blair had so for government was that he didn't want anybody getting in his way. He didn't want civil servants saying, that's going to be difficult, you shouldn't do this. There's that
2: rather plaintive observation from Richard Wilson, that I thought Tony Blair liked me until I read his memoirs.
1: Well yes, that was, but there's a very, very good quote from Richard Wilson at the time, in. no, I think it was. So uh, jo- an it wasn't. It was John- no. It no. was Jonathan Powell that uh, Richard Wilson said that. Sorry, uh, Jonathan Powell, who was Tony Blair's chief of staff, and Richard said, "I thought I got on my until I read his memoir." But there's a brilliant quote um, in um, uh, the official history of the cabinet secretaries, uh, which covers Richard Wilson, and he. It's a memo that he actually put into Blair's hands because he didn't trust it to go through the system. And it says, I can't remember all of it exactly, but it says, do not uh, try to separate uh, ministers from their permanent secretaries. Do not try and govern on a Napoleonic model and do not spend uh, too much time on foreign affairs. It may be fun, but uh, it takes up an inordinate amount of time. It's only one department among 20, and there aren't many votes in it. But to When did he give this to him? Uh, I can't remember the date. It was. Um, he was there for about. I think it was in about. I'm not sure. I'd have to check. But what,
2: are we talking sort of 97 or, or 2000?
1: No, I don't think it was in 97. I think it was a bit later than that. I think it One was. Once things
2: started to go sour. Yes,
1: yeah. Well, not just because they were going sour, but I mean that they were. Uh, you know, the civil service was being cut out, didn't know what was going on. Uh, a lot of the time, as were ministers. And you know, was Blair good at governing? I mean, he was good at getting re-elected, but he wasn't particularly good at governing. A lot of people would say, including me. Um, and he, you know, he squandered huge, huge advantages in many ways. Even leaving aside the uh, the Iraq War. And if he had been prepared to listen to other people a bit more, and both his cabinet ministers and his civil servants. Um, he might have done a lot better
2: and Cameron although it still feels a bit weird to be speaking of him in a sort of historic sense
1: I know it does doesn't it you sort of feel that maybe it's all been an adoration we'll wake up and he'll be back there um I think I think it's a bit soon to judge Cameron in a way I think Cameron's legacy will just be so overwhelmingly seen through the prism of Brexit and how could you have done that um uh he was a, he was i think he was good he, i tell you one of the things they liked to, re, to touched on one of the things they liked about him was that he understood the importance of keeping ministers in post for a reasonable amount of time so that they could not just get their feet under the under the table and be whisked away but actually get to grips with the subject um i think he was quite good at uh sort of floating above it and not trying to get too much into the detail of individual departments. I think there's a risk, it's too soon to say, but Theresa May might do that, interfering too much in particular things and ignoring other things. Whereas Cameron, I think, was quite good at, at being Prime Minister, of being slightly above the fray. And when things did go wrong, do you remember Andrew Lansley and the mm. uh, health, uh, great health reforms? and Cameron had somebody over from the health department and said "Um, just tell me in a couple of sentences what these reforms are going to do I can't remember who it was, I think it was one of the special advisors but he says well it's this and it's that and it's um, well uh," and after about 15 minutes Cameron said okay thank you very much and when the guy had gone he said oh oh bugger we're absolutely screwed or worse, to that effect slightly stronger language um, and he and he then had the sense to say we're going to pause these uh, health reforms although
2: the knock on him is that he never actually that, you know he didn't realise that Adam he was promising them in the first place which you think if, it, if, if you're saying NHS if you're campaigning saying NHS 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 the fact that your health secretary has a Gigantic reorganisation plan, which will fundamentally transform every aspect of how it works, is something you should probably be on top of.
1: Well, I think partly that was—I mean, if I were defending Cameron, I agree with you; they should have found out a lot, a lot sooner. Uh, but if I were defending Cameron, I think uh, Lansley was very uh, effective at assuring people that he had been doing this job for years, which he had, and he really knew what he was doing, and it was going to be this and this and this. And if you only have a fairly uh, brief account of it, uh, and somebody's very persuasive and very knowledgeable, I think one of the things Lansley was able to do was sort of blind them with facts and figures. And they, they bought it, and they shouldn't have done, you're right. But on the other hand, uh, I think he was persuasive, until they realised that it, it just wasn't going to work in a million years was yet another top-down reorganization. What was it, how was it described? Uh, So big you could see it from outer space.
2: But under Cameron as well, you get the um, the Francis Maud agenda and sort of this idea of injecting business I, I can see you <laughs> you 've never seen a human being's face fall as much as uh, as what I mentioned Francis name and you and you kind of waged guerrilla war against him uh, or the civil service waged guerrilla war against him through through the medium of your telegraph column uh, for quite a while
1: well, not only that but um Fran- i mean Francis Maud i think um, wished to um, reform the civil service and to try and make it better a lot of it was very good and quite a lot of the things that he wanted to do did happen i think he made several mistakes or two in particular one was which was very very uh, i think really a bit unforgivable he went round rubbishing them in public and um you shouldn't do that it's not just you shouldn't rubbish the civil servants but if you're trying to reform any organization saying to everybody as a sort of your starter for five you're absolutely useless and particularly when he or his people rubbished named civil servants um, i think that was unforgivable i think it put people's backs up um, and quite understandably so i mean you just don't really shouldn't do that you should say you're all wonderful but We need to make you even better. Uh, So I think that was um, one of his cardinal mistakes, and he just sort of couldn't help himself almost uh, in the end. Um, And I think that his determination to try and appoint, uh, uh, to go to a sort of American-style system, basically...
2: Well, you get more political. And ministers more political. Can appoint more people around them to push right. their agendas. Well,
1: there were two. The one was to have more uh, people in private offices that were directly appointed by ministers, and the other was for ministers to have more say in the appointment of the top people, the permanent secretaries. And I don't think um, we, you know, we could seeing how bad that can be. I mean, look at Trump in America. I mean, if only Trump had the British Civil Service, or if only they had a British Civil Service system. Some of the mistakes, I mean, the sort of technical mistakes that Trump has made, you know, banning people. And then, of course, there are loads of legal uh, cases, because you can't, in a democracy, ban people who've actually got perfectly valid passports, I even if it's, they it's, are it's partly, uh, you know, if they're
2: dual it nationality. This might be the first time anyone's compared Lord Moore to, to Donald Trump. <laughs>
1: Well, no, 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 I wasn't, I wasn't, meaning, to, I wasn't meaning to compare Francis Moore. But I think an American sort of spoils type system <coughs> and appointments by, on, uh, you know, he's one of us or not, I think our system's better than that. And I think that him endlessly sort of fighting against it didn't work. And wasn't ever going to work i mean i think our system's too deeply embedded and i think I'm, what i'm really saying is not that that francis was like uh, donald trump no 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 i wouldn't tell I, mean, I certainly not. that's very unfair but um i do think that our system works better than ours uh, than theirs uh, uh, to some extent and the other thing that francis never got to grips with was that i think he had a perhaps a vision of making the cabinet office the sort of the center of whitehorn you know uh, the cabinet office doing procurement for absolutely everybody and uh, uh, doing HR for everybody and being a real real power base and of course one of the reasons that that doesn't work um, is that other ministers will not put up with it and under our system our unwritten Constitution it is ministers who are legally responsible I mean the person responsible for the schools is the Secretary of State for Education. It's not number 10. Certainly not somebody in the Cabinet Office. And the same is true of uh, defence or health or anything else. That minister, the Secretary of State, has responsibility and they are not going to let um, somebody from the Cabinet Office or somebody from any other department, if they can possibly help it, uh, just trample all over them. You have to do things, to a degree at any rate, by consensus.
2: So, I, I guess so in conclusion, your, your position would be the civil service is worse than it could be, but better than you think.
1: I'd have to work that out. Minister. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sue Cameron, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor, and I hope I'll see you again next week. If you like this, please subscribe.